Well, good morning to everyone. Uh, I bring you greetings from Free Grace Baptist Church in Chilliwack. Uh, Pastor Kirkpatrick and your church are continually in our prayers, so it's um, it's nice to be able to see that Mike is off and getting some vacation, Mike and uh, and Jessica and the gang, and and that uh, I'm able to help uh, serve in some regard in in his absence and. Uh, you will continue to be in our prayers. Well, uh, to sacred things we go. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. As you're turning there, this is a wonderful book of the Bible for Christians to turn to, to see set forth the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is set forth continually as that one supreme, that one perfect that one superabounding in his excellence. We see also that there are exhortations given in light of the perfection of Jesus Christ for Christians saved by the grace of the triune God to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the perfection of their Savior. So this is Hebrews 10. We will read from verse 1 to verse 25. This is the word of the triune God. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins." Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Well, let's go to our God in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this exercise of worship now, the preaching of the Word of God. We do pray that you would be with us. We would ask, Lord God, that you would give us your Spirit, that he might stir us up to high thoughts of our blessed Savior, that he might equip us by your Word to do those things pleasing in your sight that come to you acceptable through Jesus Christ, our Mediator. We do pray, Lord God, that you would, by that spirit, encourage and edify your saints gathered here this morning. And Lord God, that you would save sinners by word and spirit. We pray that any and all that came inside this door this morning outside of Christ would leave singing the praises of our blessed Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the subject of our focus or the uh, content of our focus this morning will be Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Um, it's a wonderful chapter that sets forth the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the theme of the book, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, the superabounding excellence of Jesus Christ over all that had come before him. In the old covenant, there were those types, there were those sacrifices, there were those washings, there were those ceremonies. But in Christ Jesus, we have that one to whom all those things pointed. The author to the Hebrews sets him forth, sets forth our blessed Christ, and in verses 19 to 25, exhorts Christians, exhorts the recipient of this letter, but by the fact that we have a living word that abides forever, the fact that we have this living word, this double-edged sword, this comes to us as well, by God to us, that we might be comforted by this blessed Christ, and that we might go about the manner of these exhortations in a manner worthy of that blessed Christ. So just uh, what we have here in Hebrews 10, and in fact, Hebrews 10, beginning at 19, is a pivotal point in the epistle to the Hebrews. Prior to this point, we had theology largely brought forth by the Apostle Paul. So from chapters 1 to 10, 19, we have largely the preciousness of Jesus, the, the, the beautifulness of our Christ, the glory of our Savior set forth, and now we transition to something of, of an exhortative substance. You know, an exhortation is, is an urging. An exhortation is a, a strong urging to incite action, to incite activity. And so the Apostle Paul here, upon the, the heels of presenting this blessed Christ, exhorts Christians to exercise certain things in a manner worthy of the gospel of grace. If the theological substance of the book of Hebrews is the superabounding excellence of Jesus Christ over all that had come before him, then the exhortative substance of the epistle to the Hebrews is for Christians to lay hold of that Christ with an unswerving constancy. And that's what we have here in this Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. The passage breaks down into two parts. First off, the foundation for the exhortation, and secondly, the giving of the exhortation. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, the foundation for the exhortation and the giving of the exhortation. We're going to note that the exhortations are structured in a threefold manner. So each of these three exhortations that we're going to read through that we're going to preach, 
that we're going to hear, each of these three exhortations have a threefold structure. And that threefold structure is this. First, the exhortation proper is given. So there is this let us clause followed by an action that is urged unto. So the exhortation proper is given. The manner in which the exhortation is to be carried out is then indicated. So this let us clause comes urging unto an activity. And then what is the manner by which Christians are to carry out this activity that is given to us? And then thirdly, the uh, a reason or the motivational impetus for heeding the exhortation is provided. So it, it, confidence, uh, encouragement, what is the reason for carrying out the particular exhortation that is given by the Apostle Paul? So let's look at this then. Before us, we have, as Henry notes, the means prescribed for preventing our apostasy and promoting our fidelity and perseverance. This is what's in the mind of the Apostle Paul. When he sets forth Jesus Christ, we have there what the Christian looks to with eyes of faith, the confidence wherewith we conduct ourselves, by which we conduct ourselves in this lower world. So first off, the foundation for the exhortation. Let's have a look at what we see here at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. That's the foundation for the exhortations that are going to follow. And in fact, the foundation for the exhortations that are going to follow is uh, are all of the chapters of Hebrews up until this point. From chapter 1 to chapter 1019, the Apostle Paul has extensively set forth what we've already said, that superabounding excellence of Christ. And that over and against all of those articles of the mosaical institutions, all of those washings, all of those ceremonies, all of those things. C.H. Spurgeon put it something like this. He said, um, the, the Jews could not endure a crucified Messiah. You know, the unbelieving Jews, they were about the pomp of the ceremonies. They were about the pomp of the sacrifices. They were about the pomp of the display of the mosaical religion. So the Jews could not endure a crucified Messiah. All of these washings, all of these ceremonies, all of these things, are they all to be put away and nothing remain but a bleeding Savior? The, the apostle here says yes, and Christians throughout the centuries have said yes. Jesus Christ has come as the fulfillment of all of those things. And so the apostle Paul has brought it to this point and brings this massive therefore to his audience. Whenever you find a therefore in Holy Scripture, it's a very important thing to take note of. Now, all of Scripture is important to take note of, but very often we have the apostles, the prophets, bringing forth these large therefores based upon what I've just said, this is what you should do, such and such. And so the massive therefore that we have is built upon the blessed reality of Jesus Christ as the one who has offered the perfect sacrifice as the perfect priest. And those are the two things that are brought forth here. First off, confidence in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, and second, the fact of Christ's high priestly office. Notice the confidence in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, brethren, having boldness 
to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You know, whenever we speak about Christian boldness, and when we see here Paul speaking about Christian boldness, we're not to think of this as us, as Christians, lifting our chin and our nose and puffing out our chests and saying, you know, look at me, I'm a Christian, I'm better than the rest of this lot that surrounds me. You know, Christian boldness is not that sort of thing. What Paul has in mind here when he says having boldness, that doesn't come out of us, that isn't stirred up by us. We are not the center and the, the center and the, the galaxy of confidence and boldness, but rather it has to do with Christ, that by virtue of the perfection of his saving work, by virtue of the, the complete fullness and efficacy of Jesus Christ having perfected salvation for his people, therefore we are to have a Christian courage. Therefore, by Christ and by the Spirit given, we can boldly come to the throne of grace, not as some lion-hearted Christians in our own boldness, but in that provided by the triune God by virtue of the perfect salvation of Jesus Christ. We have that boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And we see here by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. There is a lot of Old Testament, Old Covenant typology that is resting behind this statement, and it's a completely different sermon to parse out all of those things. But suffice it to say that the Apostle Paul has labored and is laboring to stress that the Old Covenant was not the end of Christian religion. But rather, Christ is the end. He is the terminus. He is the one to whom all the streams of Old Covenant revelation pointed. He is the one to whom all the streams of Old Covenant religion and activity pointed. It is Christ alone, his blood, his righteousness. That's why previous to to verse 19, we have the Apostle Paul stressing the mosaical insufficiency with regards to sacrifices, and exalting alone Christ's sufficiency and his sacrifice. We see the Apostle Paul setting forth the insufficiency of the Mosaical priesthood and exalting Christ as the true and only high priest for the salvation of his people. And the fact of Christ's priestly office, we see here the language of verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. This is to cheer our hearts and to bring us great joy and confidence because we have a high priest over the house of God. Not an earthly high priest, but a heavenly high priest. That son of God who came from on high, sinners to save. As we heard our brother Howie pray this morning who took on our humanity. That one from on high who assumed man's nature with all the essential properties and the, in common, the common infirmities thereof and yet without sin and perfected salvation. The language of, if, if we were, um, if someone was to ask us the question, give me, a, give me a single sentence or a single verse summary of the, of the book of Hebrews. We could turn to Hebrews 4 and with propriety answer from verse 14. Notice what we have there, seeing then, this is Hebrews 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is a one-sentence summary of the book of Hebrews. 
given to us by the Apostle Paul. We see the theology of Christ as the perfect high priest, and we see the exhortative substance of the book, let us hold fast our confession. So moving on then from the foundation for the exhortation, now to the exhortations themselves. But just one moment to sum up. You see, the foundation for the exhortations here, we could simply say, is the dignity of the person of Christ and the virtue of his office. What do we mean by that? The fact that the Christ who is our high priest is the second of the blessed triune God. He is God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. He is of the same substance and equal with him who eternally begat him. And yet he took on man's nature for our good and for our salvation, the dignity of his person. He is perfect God, perfect man, savior for sinners. And then the virtue of his office. What do we mean by that? We mean the perfection of his saving work. He didn't just come and effect a redemption of perhaps and maybe, but he came and he effected a salvation and a redemption of certainty, of surety. He perfected the salvation of a multitude which no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so what then are the exhortations given in light of this perfect Christ? Well, we have three of them. We could say there is a threefold exhortation, or perhaps more properly, there are three exhortations given. And notice that they come with the tenor of two words, let us. There are three exhortations that have let us clauses beginning them. So we want to observe that these are congregational exhortations. These aren't given to individual Christians, though individual Christians read, they hear, they take in the exhortation, but it is a congregational exhortation. Let us, the apostle writes three times. You know, we are not so many, <clears throat> so many maverick Christians that just go about our business and then come in for worship and then bounce off to our various stations, vocations, and responsibilities. We are a band of brothers and sisters united in Christ Jesus by the spirit of the triune God. We're a band of brothers. We're a collection of believers. And so the Apostle Paul, recognizing this and wanting this to be true, writes, let us. And the exhortations come to us in that tenor and in that flavor. And hopefully you find it a boon to the soul when we come into churches, when, we, when you come into this church and you're gathered uh, together with believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully that's a boon to your soul because we're, we're out in the world six days of the week. You know, we're, we're surrounded around about by evil and wickedness and, and depravity. We're besieged on all sides by the, the devil, the, the flesh, the world. We can come into this place and we can look to the right, we can look to the left, we can consider that behind us and before us, there is our band of brothers standing with us, singing the praises of God, bringing prayers to the triune God, rejoicing in such a blessed Savior. Remember, these things are congregational and we are to be and to act as those who are not mavericks, 
but who are part of a band of brothers united by Christ through the Spirit. So the first exhortation that we have is a call to engage in confident and true new covenant worship. Notice the language here. So based upon the perfection of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice and his unending priesthood, notice verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is a lot that could be said here, but to sum up, we see here the call to engage in confident and true new covenant worship. Notice as we, as we, as we noted earlier, we said there, there's a threefold structure to these uh, exhortations. So the exhortation proper is given, and that is seen here in the language, let us draw near with a true heart. So that is the exhortation proper, let us draw near with a true heart. And this has to do with our drawing near in worship. In fact, these three exhortations have in mind the gathering together of the saints in worship. And so let us draw near with a true heart means that we are to draw near to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by virtue of the finished work of, the G- of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. And we are to do so confidently, not in arrogance, not with presumption, but in the confidence that Christ has afforded us by virtue of his perfect work. Let us draw near. Isn't that a blessed thing that our God invites us to draw near to him and worship? We don't, we, don't, we don't come sheepishly and in a worldly fear to a tyrannical king and, and offer some measure of service, but rather we come to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God of glory, a God of majesty, a God of eternal loving kindness, a God of grace and mercy. And it's that God who invites us to draw near with a true heart. I think what ha- what's in view here with the drawing near with a true heart is that it's set in opposition to, uh, to a heartless worship, to a worship that is in body only, a physical worship that we might engage in the matter of worship that is to come and and render service and obedience and and worship unto God, but the manner isn't there. That is, it doesn't come from a a heart that is filled with a true and lively faith. It doesn't come from a heart of regeneracy. It doesn't come from a heart of an actual believer. And so a true heart means that we draw near with Christian hearts, hearts that have been renewed, hearts that have been made new. Our stony hearts have been pulled out of our chests, figuratively speaking, in the language of Ezekiel. Those hearts of flesh have been put in that beat for the Savior and the glory of his kingdom. And so we draw near with a true heart. The manner in which this exhortation is to be carried out is in full assurance of faith. There's no need for us to draw near sheepishly, There's no need for us to draw near laden with guilt. When we draw near to God, we are not to be laden with guilt as Christians because the power, the condemnation, the guilt of sin have been taken away by the perfection of the saving work of Jesus Christ. When you come into this church this morning, if you're you're besieged with the remaining corruption that you have in your Christian hearts, if you have sinned and you have sinned, that you're dwelling inordinately on on transgressing the law of God. You're, as a Christian, for whatever reason, well, for because of our remaining corruption, you're not looking with eyes of faith to Christ and saying, thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the shed blood that washes me pure. 
but you're dwelling inordinately on sin and you come in and you're, you're downcast in spirit. Know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the one who has taken away the guilt of sin. Flee to him. Yes, it is good to have seasons where, as Spurgeon says, we peruse the diary of our memories, for there the witnesses of our guilt have faithfully recorded their names, but we quickly, quickly flee to the Savior and there find forgiveness and the joy of everlasting life. And so we come in full assurance of faith, not with guilt. You know, we were in our previous lives, we were laden with guilt. We were laden with sin. We did have that burden of sin, like Christian, as, as Howie was reading this morning from uh, the Pilgrim's Progress. I'm uh, reminded again of that scene where he uh, speaks of, uh, of coming. How, how, how far have you come laden with sin, he says, and, uh, uh, and that burden that you were in. The, the, the pack that he had was, was heavy upon his back, and, and you know, he, he talks about coming to, the, coming to the cross and coming to the tomb and the burden falling from off his back, those cords that tied it to him crack. And he says, blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the one who there was put to shame for me. We come in the power of Christ and his salvation to the triune God, guiltless in worship, confident in worship because of his shed blood and the righteousness that he has imputed to us received by faith alone. We come in full assurance of faith. And the reason for heeding that exhortation is given. Notice the reason for heeding the exhortation, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This passage is, and the book of Hebrews is, replete with old covenant, finding its terminus, finding its completion, finding its perfection in Jesus Christ. And we see that again here. The reason for, or the motivational impetus for, us to draw near to the triune God in full assurance of faith is because we have had our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and we have had our bodies washed with pure water. Of course, this is figural language, and hopefully your minds go to the Old Testament with the, the sprinkling of the blood following the offering of the sacrifice. We would go to the book of Exodus, we would see that the sprinkling, uh, the sprinkling of the blood after the offering of the sacrifice given, which was a figural representation pointing forward to the washing of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And that's what we see here with this language of our, our bodies washed with pure water. We are to hearken back to the book of Ezekiel, and please turn there with me if you're able to, if you have a Bible, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36, because there we see, there we see the Old Testament backdrop to this statement that is being made, our bodies washed with pure water. Notice at Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 24. Well, I'd like to back up to 22, actually, because that's, that's important context. So Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. 
And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean." I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. The blessed thing that the Lord God intervenes, the Lord God in his sovereignty brings us forth from the darkness and the deadness of sin to life and light in Jesus Christ. Not for our sakes, but for his holy namesake. He did that. And we see the language connecting to our passage here at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So going back to Hebrews 10 now, when we read this language, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, we are to think of regeneration, being made alive in Christ Jesus by the power of amazing and victorious grace, by the power and the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. There's a language, uh, there's that language in the book of Titus that we are not saved by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, the water here doesn't apply to baptism. The pure water doesn't refer to that particular sacrament or ordinance, but it's figural language that points to the Spirit's sovereign power in making us alive in Christ Jesus the Lord. What a blessed reality that we can draw near unto the triune God in worship, that we can come in guiltless because of Christ, that we can come in burdenless because of Christ, that we can come in with confidence because of his finished work. Now, secondly, we see here the call to be steadfast in the confession of Christ. Notice the next exhortation, the call to be steadfast in the confession of Christ. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This comes with that same threefold structure. So we have the exhortation proper, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We have the manner by which that is to be carried out without wavering. And then we have the motivational impetus for he who promised is faithful. And so first off, the exhortation given is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. There is an action exhorted unto or urged. There is an operation on the part of the Christian that is exhorted unto. The action is hold fast. Let us hold fast. This, in, this envisages or it, it uh, envisions a, uh, a strong grip, a holding tight, a steadfastness in something. You want to hold fast to something. In this context, there is a particular object that is to be held fast to, and that is the confession of our hope. But when you hear this language repeated very often throughout the book of Hebrews, and it's used elsewhere, this hold fast, we are to think of a, of a solid grip. We are to think of a, 
uh, a gripping, a diligence. It comprehends the exertion of strength and a gripping firmly. So this language is given of hold fast, and it recognizes or it assumes that there is something of value to hold on to. This, this exhortation is given hold fast, but hold fast onto what? If we are to, to grip as Christians with confidence something, then that something must be of a high value. And we see that the language here is given that the object of our holding fast is the confession of our hope. Uh, in other renderings, the profession of faith. What the idea is in view is, in a word, Christ. The confession of our hope is that we are to lay hold, we are to hold fast of Jesus Christ, because what has been the subject of the book of Hebrews but Jesus Christ, the perfection of his person, the perfection of his work. And so we are to lay hold of, we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope that is Jesus Christ, his doctrine and his gospel. We are not to let that go. You see, this also comprehends or recognizes the danger of opposition, that there is something in view that, uh, that is a temptation, uh, an allurement, something that could steal someone away from a grip upon the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know, of course, that those who are brought forth from death to life in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit can never fall away, can never be taken away. They are firmly in the inviolable grip of the sovereign Christ. But there were those in the context that had an outward profession of faith that were being stolen away to go back to Judaic religion, to go back to those mosaical institutions, to depart the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to go back to typical things that are now obsolete, it's a madness that they could be stolen away from the one to whom all of the prophets pointed, the one to whom all the sacrifices pointed, the one to whom all the washings and ceremonies pointed, that they would go back to the typical and cast off the antitype, Jesus Christ the Lord, that they would go back to the shadow and cast off the substance, that they would go back to the copy and cast off the true, so the hold fast comes because there is a danger of apostasy. There is a danger of departing from that grip upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the grip is to be strong. There is a steadfastness, and the object is Christ, the confession of our hope. We are to hold fast our precious Savior. And Notice here that the language in which the exhortation is to be carried out, or the manner, rather, in which the exhortation is to be carried out is without wavering. It's to be a doubtless faith. You know, we are not to be so many people that are like that sailless, rudderless, oarless ship that's cast about on the waves of the ocean. That's not to be the Christian, but rather we are on a boat the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, guides us through this lower world, and we are to be such as hold firm to the Christ of our profession without wavering. We're not to be stolen away by, by rabbit trails of, uh, of arguments and inconsequential things. We're not to be taken away by anything other than the true and the steadfast profession of him who came into this world sinners to save. The manner of our holding fast 
is to be done. The manner of holding fast the confession of our hope is to be done without wavering. You know, we, we could hear, we could, we can almost hear the Apostle Paul pleading with his audience as we see throughout the, the text of the book of Hebrews, there is that temptation, there is the allurement of the shiny things of the Mosaic religion that people are being tempted by. And so the Apostle Paul very often uses this language of hold fast, very often encourages them and exhorts them and commands them to lay hold of their blessed Jesus, lest they draw back to perdition. And we can almost hear, uh, we can almost hear the Apostle Paul say, why would you go why would you go back to the foretellings of the prophets when in Christ you have the one to whom they foretold? Why would you seek out some other Messiah, wait for some other Christ when the Christ has come, when the one promised in the prophets has come? Why would you go back to the ministrations of angels when in Christ you have the ministry of the maker of angels? Why would you go back to law when you have the law keeper? Why would you go back to an old covenant when you have the one to whom that covenant pointed and he is the very covenant keeper? The the covenant giver became the covenant keeper in incarnate glory that he might bring us to Emmanuel's land. Why would you go back to the typical things? Why the temple when you have the true, when you have Emmanuel? Why would you go back to that signification of the divine presence when in Christ you have the one to whom that signified? You have the one signaled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why go back to the copy when you have the true? Why go back to the shadow when you have the substance, Jesus Christ, the Lord? He pleads with them. Why would you go back in the context to the ministrations of blood and goats, to the ministrations of an earthly priesthood, when in Christ you have the high priest, you have that once for all, that obedience unto cross death vocation of the Son of God. Hold fast, our blessed Jesus. And the reason for heeding the exhortation is this language, for he who promised is faithful. You see, if there was any other doubt remaining, if there was any other hesitation remaining, there shouldn't be. But there can be, because they're faced with a difficulty. Their goods are being plundered. Uh, They're being tempted by their countrymen and their family to cast off this Jesus and come back to those shiny mosaical things. And so if there was any hesitation remaining, then this would come and it would dash away all fears and it would dash away all hesitations because he who promised is faithful. Our God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God of heaven and earth is not a man. You see, we make promises and we break them all the time. This morning, I, I, well, actually last night and this morning, I promised uh, Tracy, my wife, that I would put the car seat, the car seat out of the van because she, she needed it uh, for, for bringing our granddaughter here this morning. And of course, I forgot. I made the promise, and I, I completely forgot, and she texted me, hey, you've got the car seat with you. Um, we, we break promises all the time. We make them, we break them. God is not a man. The living and true God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his glorious perfections, and he cannot lie. He makes a promise, and he keeps them, and so here, when this reason, this motivational impetus to heed the, the exhortation comes, these Christians, and by, by 
the, the, the reality that we have a living and active word, these Christians, we would be lifted up and we are lifted up to strong things for our Savior and our triune God that will hold fast, that will grip the confession of our faith, that will hold fast to Christ, even though the flesh assails us, even though the devil assails us, even though the world allures us, we will hold fast to our blessed Christ because of the fact that there are promises kept and promises made and fulfilled by our glorious God. What do you think their minds would be drawn to? This language comes to them because he who promised is faithful. I think that it's safe to say that their minds could be drawn, their minds would have been drawn to that first promise of God. The hero born of woman will crush the serpent with his heel. The promises made to Abraham that of all... that, that, um, that, that the blessing will go forth unto all nations, that there is a seed coming forth that will bless your progeny, that the, 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 the progeny by faith will be innumerable from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The promises of Isaiah, there is one coming who will bear the wrath of God for many. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Micah 5, Isaiah 9, All of those blessed promises that there is one coming forth in the fullness of the times to save guilty sinners and to perfect a salvation for a multitude which no man can number. That one is coming, and he did come. God fulfilled his promise. He said that there will be one to come forth who will save his people from their sins, and Christ came forth and saved his people from their sins. He who promised is faithful. And th- this is this should be a blessed thing to us as Christians. You know, we we we're tossed about by spiritual difficulties. We're tossed about by physical difficulties. We're um, we're besieged by all 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 around us by madness. Whether it comes from people, well, it always comes from people, but just those around us, uh, from politicians, from those in positions of power. There is so much that we can cast our eyes upon and and take in with our ears that really does beset us as the people of God. We, We realize certainly the reality of sin, the reality of total depravity when we look out upon the world and we see what goes on. And we realize, of course, the remaining corruption in our own regenerated hearts. What do we have but the promises of God that by Christ and his gospel an innumerable multitude will enter into Emmanuel's land on that last day and sing the glories of the triune God forever. We have a God who promises, brethren, and who keeps his promises. He promises the forgiveness of sins, and he gives us the forgiveness of sins by the perfection of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his priesthood. He promises a righteousness that avails with him, and it does not come by us, by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, because that could never merit everlasting life. It could never satisfy the act of obedience demands of a just and holy God. But he promises a righteousness that avails, and that is Christ's righteousness, the one who perfectly obeyed the law of his Father, and that righteousness is imputed to us and received by faith alone. The promises of God are sure and steadfast. Lastly, we have the call to be others-minded in our walk with Christ. Notice the language here in verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So this third and final exhortation, again, has the same structure. First off, the exhortation is given, let us consider one another in order to stir up good works. Secondly, the manner in which that is to take place is given, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And then lastly, the motivational impetus is the approaching day. And so first, under the call to be others-minded in our walk with Christ, let's look at this exhortation, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. There is a posture and connected activity called for here. And that posture is an others-mindedness. And it, it rubs against the nature of man to be others-minded because we are very easily all about ourselves. What I want, the satisfactions that I wish to receive, when I go into the worship of God, what is God and what are people going to do for me, rather than what am I going to do for God and horizontally, what am I going to do for the people? Uh, we're very often, our, our default posture to a certain degree, and in a sense, is to be me-minded rather than others-minded. And so this posture is to be wrought in the hearts and is to be present in the hearts of Christians and others-mindedness. And the connected activity is called for, and a purpose for it is stated here. Notice the language again, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Hopefully, that when we come into church, we, prior to coming to church, we pray for that. I, it might, it's, might not be common, and I, I confess, I, I don't do it every Lord's Day. I need to, to pray that when I go to church today, when I gather together with the assembled saints, I will seek to be others-minded that I might stir up love and good works in other people. You know, hopefully, when you come into church, you have your souls lifted. You have your, your countenance raised, if you will, because of the subject, because of the object of our worship, of course, the triune God, because of the glory of the gospel, but also because, remember, we can look to our right, to our left, behind us and before us, and the band of brothers are there. We're here to stir up love and good works, primarily and preeminently to worship the triune God, but the Apostle Paul here has an, an adjunct or a uh, concomitant or some sort of exhortation that comes along with the vertical, and that is the horizontal, and that is to be others-minded, to stir up love and good works. And hopefully we pray for that. Hopefully as we come into church, we have hearts for that, that we're not about ourselves, but we are about others. We're about our brothers and sisters and seeking to admonish, seeking to encourage, seeking to lift up in prayer. Sometimes even a smile helps you know, just presenting that face and giving a nice smile. I don't have the best smile on planet Earth, but, um, but a smile can lift the soul. A genuine smile can, can lift the soul. And then the words that we speak. What comes out of our mouths ought to be edifying to our brothers and sisters. It ought to serve the purpose, the glory of the gospel. It ought to serve the purpose of the unity of the church in the spirit and in the love of the brethren. We're to be others-minded so that we might stir up love and good works. And we remember here the manner in which the exhortation is to be carried out is by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another. So first off, this clause, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, in the context here, it would be they, there were those that were obviously doing that, that were forsaking the assembling of themselves in the church of God. And the reasons are, you know, can be many, but in the context, they were being tempted and allured to depart from Christ and to go back to the Mosaic institutions, to go back to old covenant religion. And so their family members, their countrymen, their friends would be stressing, would be, would be forcing, would be mocking, would be, you know, doing all that they can do to have them uh, revile Christ, depart him and come back to the old ways, which were now obsolete because of the perfection of Jesus. And so there were those that were forsaking the assembling of themselves out of fear of persecution. Goods were being plundered. Things were being stolen. Uh, they were being persecuted. Men and women were being dragged off to, to prison. Paul was once one of those changed by amazing and victorious grace. But there were those who were persecuting the people of Christ. And so there were those who, in fear, were not uh, were, were forsaking the assembling of themselves. But the Apostle Paul says, don't do that. Because it's in the church that Christ is. We heard in the prayer this morning that uh, Christ walks amongst his lampstands in Revelation that means the churches of Christ. Christ is in the church. Why would you forsake the gathering together of the saints where Christ is? That one who came into the world sinners to save in his ascended glory is by his spirit present with his people. And you're going to forsake that? You're going to go back to, to typical and earthly things, things of this lower substance and cast off the one who is of one substance with his father. It's madness to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's where your champion is. That's where your sacrifice is. That's where your priest is. You know, in our modern landscape, there are things that can that can steal us away from the assembling of ourselves as well, aren't there? Laziness. Sometimes laziness creeps in and eh, I'm not going to go to church today for, for whatever reason. Maybe it's just laziness itself and not some things that feed that laziness. But then there are those things that will feed the laziness. There are the allurements of the world that are keeping, keeping me away from the gathering together of the saints of Christ. Whatever it might be, pride, it might be guilt. You might be doubting your salvation because of a transgression of the law of God. Remember, flee to Christ immediately. Don't wallow in this inordinate season of, uh, of you know, uh, figuratively flagellating yourself like the old Catholics, be trying to atone for your sins. Fly to the, Christ, the, the Savior, flee to Christ immediately and find in him the forgiveness of sins. We are not to forsake the, the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, notice, but exhorting, but exhorting one another. Exhortation is a key element in our Christian conversation. We are dealing with other people when we're interacting with other people, we are to be an exhorting people. If someone is downcast, we are to exhort. If someone is feeling the weight of a uh, of sin committed, we are to exhort. Whatever the case may be, a spiritually downcast one in the assembly of Christ is to re receive the exhorting graces, the exhorting kindnesses of 
fellow Christians. So let us be such as engage in that commanded and in that exhorted activity. Notice lastly, under the call to be others-minded in our walk with Christ, the reason for heeding the exhortation is the approaching day. Notice the language here, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So this is the motivational impetus to do what Paul has just exhorted. The motivational impetus is the approaching day. So what day is that? What is this approaching day? Um, I think there, there are a number of approaches to what that day could be. Generally, the, the day of a Christian's death, you know, that um, they are to be engaged in the not forsakingness of this exhortation and the exhorting of one another because the day of their death draws nigh. It could, it could be tomorrow. It could be at the end of this, this church service. I don't want to scare anybody and be a prophet of any sort, and I'm not. But there is a day of death coming. And if that's the case, we are to engage in this activity because we don't know when that'll be. So not knowing that, we are uh, exhorted to to, uh, gather together and exhort fellow Christians. But that's probably not it. It's probably not either the final and ultimate and general day of judgment. And it, 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 others have argued that it could be the forthcoming Sabbath day, but the context of the command is such that they are in the context of worship itself. So the day is probably the day of judgment, the judgment of God upon apostate Israel um, in AD 70. Christ has prophesied it. The apostles have prophesied it. They are aware that signs are coming, that certain things will be occurring, that they will be reminded of the words of their Savior and the words of the apostles, that the day of judgment upon apostate Israel who cast off Christ who cast off and forsook the gospel, who broke the covenant, who broke the law, and who despised the one who gave the law, despised the one who kept the covenant, that is Jesus Christ the Lord, the day is coming where they will be judged for that. And that day did come. And so prior to that, knowing that this day of chaos, knowing that this day of judgment, knowing that this day is coming, they are to all the more attend unto the assembling of the saints, that they might rejoice together, and that they might exhort one another. Just some concluding observations here, and then we'll close in a matter of minutes. One thing that we need to do, and this is easy for the preacher to say, but it's a glorious thing that we get to engage in, and that is we are to reflect often upon the person and work of Christ. I say that's easy for the preacher to say, what's your application? Oh, we're to reflect upon the person and work of Christ. But hopefully that's not a, a, a rote statement. Hopefully that's not, a, that's not something that caused anybody's eyes to roll. Can't we move on to, you know, to more, you know, perfect, you know, more spiritual things and sort of the, the minutia of a, of a hef- heavily art- articulated theology that we can just, you know, bask in the, the, the descending glory of, uh, of petals of certain wisdom. There is a measure of simplicity to Christianity, and it is seen in the reflection upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ the Lord. You know, we are not to, we are not to somehow move beyond that as the, the things of an infancy and try to seek out other more, more spiritual things. Uh, you know, the, the modern guruistic articulations of so-called modern-day prophets and apostles, we have to, you know, pay hundreds of dollars to see their conferences just to, to take in the madness of their irreligion. 
We're not to seek after tongues and prophecy and knowledge because these things have ceased. We're not to, to seek after some other thing other than reflection upon the person and work of Christ, which also means that we reflect upon Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that one infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his perfections, who has called us forth by amazing and victorious grace to behold his Christ. Reflect often upon the person and work of Christ. Why? Because it will be the ground and foundation of the blessed activity that we get to engage in when we do all of these let us's when we draw near and worship confidently, when we hold fast the confession of that Christ with an, with an unwavering constancy, and when we gather together with the saints, exhorting them uh, unto blessed love and good works in their lower sojourn. We're also to seek to contribute to and encourage a congregational unity in pursuing these things, confidence in worship, perseverance in the faith, and attending to the means of grace. We are to contribute to and encourage, and encourage that congreg congregational unity in the doing of these things. If we, we see somebody spiritually downcast, we lift them up with exhortation. We lift them up with prayer. Say, how can I pray for you? Is there anything I can do for you? We, we tend to one another. We, we do the Philippians 2, 1 to 4 activity of putting the interests of others before those of our own, and we engage in another's mindedness. We, we come confidently to the throne of grace by virtue of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, and we encourage others to do likewise. Don't forsake church. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves. It's easy to do. Sometimes it's hard to come to church. You know, we don't, we don't have the same allurements that were before their eyes in the first century, before the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, but we still have an assailing devil, we still have a contrary world, and we still have a lusting flesh. And so it can be hard, but we must pray that God would give us his spirit to stir us up, to come into the doors of this church, to gather together with the band of brothers and to sing the praises of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rejoicing in his Christ. And lastly, Christ has perfectly satisfied the justice of God for all who believe in him. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, hopefully you rejoice in the Savior. You do, don't you? He's the sum and substance of, of biblical religion. He's our Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our prophet, priest, and king, the second of the blessed triune that came into this world, assumed our nature, and recovered his elect. Christ has perfectly satisfied the justice of God for those who believe in him. So if you're here this morning and you don't believe in this Jesus Christ, you're outside of him in damning unbelief. It's the justice of a God who, as it were, looks upon you with furled brow and eyes that burn with flames of righteousness, and he sees sin, depravity, and the transgression of the law of God, the rejection of the Savior of men, and in judgment and in holiness and justice, you'll be cast into the lake of fire that burns for the devil and his angels that's been reserved. What is the answer to damning unbelief? but belief in Jesus Christ, the Savior. You've come in these doors outside of Christ for whatever reason you're here, out of obligation or you're visiting, whatever it may be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And you will avail of the blessedness of his sacrifice. You will avail of the perfection of his 
high priestly office. You will avail of a salvation that is glorious, that is wondrous. You will avail of the perfection of his work, the perfection of his death, and that glorious resurrection where he raised himself upon the third day in power and in great victory. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. Don't cast him off. Don't tarry and wait. Don't dangle upon the propositions of the gospel and say, I might consider them on another day. But now this is the hour of salvation. Bend a knee to the Savior and with a joyous heart and a glorying tongue, sing the praises of your victor and your champion. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We rejoice in what it speaks to us concerning the perfection of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for his sacrifice and for his high priestly office. We thank you for his doing, for his dying, for his rising again, for his ascension in great power and victory, and the fact of his current session, that he now reigns, that he now rules, that all has been given unto him for his authority, for his governing. We thank you that he subdues hearts, that he conquers the hearts of his enemies, that he makes them his friends, that he brings those who are previously opposed to him, that he brings them to positions of gathering together with home, with those to whom were previously opposed. We, we thank you that he makes those out of darkness, out of sin, out of depravity, his own by amazing and victorious grace. And we pray for that spirit now. We pray for that spirit wherever the word goes forth, that by spirit and word, a multitude of newly redeemed tongues would sing the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and rejoice in the conquering Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.